and turn our attention to God's Word this morning as we look to John chapter 16, verses 12 through 33. That's going to be on page 902, if you've got a, a pew Bible. John 16, 12 through 33, so we're going to finish out this chapter. Here's the word of God. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves when I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word once again this Lord's Day, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us the ability, ability to see and hear and understand the truth contained in this passage. Help us to apply it wisely and to glorify you. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1700s, and during the American Revolutionary War, loading and firing a, a rifle, or in this case, a black powder musket, took time. And it involved several steps. In fact, most soldiers could get off three rounds per minute. Very well-trained, proficient soldiers might be able to get off four shots in one minute. And the British Army, wanted to make sure everyone was as well prepared as they could be. So they had commands that they issued to walk the soldiers through preparing their muskets to fire. First, they would be commanded to bring the musket into priming position with the flash pan open. Next, they would be commanded to draw a paper cartridge. This was a piece of paper with a lead ball on one side and the right amount of powder measured out on the other with a twist in between. Then they would hear the command prime, which meant that they were to, to tear it open, put some of the, the priming powder into the, the flash pan. This was followed by the command about. The soldier would drop the, the musket to the ground with the butt on the ground of the floor of, of, the, of the, the ground. And they would pour some of the, the rest of the powder down the front of the muzzle, right down the front. This was followed by the paper wadding and the lead ball. Next, they would hear draw ramrod. So they would pull out the ramrod with one hand, then backhanded, pull it out the rest of the way so in one motion they could turn it and start to place it in the front of the barrel. This was followed by the command to ram. And this involved pushing the lead ball and the paper down to the powder, followed by two quick taps. Return ramrod. This was the command to return the ramrod to its holding place underneath the barrel. It wasn't going to do the soldier any good if they left it there and proceeded in battle. The next time they had to shoot, they wouldn't be able to load. Finally, the command was given to make ready. And the soldier brought, soldier brought the, the musket into position and they pulled back the hammer until it was fully cocked. After the make ready command, they didn't need to do anything else. All the preparations had been made. They were ready to engage the enemy. The only thing left to do was to aim and fire. In John 16, 12 through 33, Jesus is telling his disciples to make ready. This, this whole passage is a command to make ready. He's poured into them for three years. He has given them teaching after teaching, after lesson, after command, and after three years of intensive discipleship, spiritual formation by the Master, this is it. These are the last things that Jesus says to his closest disciples. I mean, right after this, you can see in, the, in your Bibles, chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer, and then it's the arrest. So this is it. These are the last words Jesus says to his disciples recorded in the, in the book of John before the crucifixion. All the prep work was complete. No other steps needed to be taken. The disciples were ready to engage the world. But Jesus does something during this make ready command that no other commander has ever done in the history of the world with 100% accuracy. He has told them the outcome of the battle. He tells them ahead of time that the victory is theirs. 
There's a lot here. So, so let's get started with verse 12. It begins with not ready to hear. As part of his make ready command, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The disciples, I hope we understand, have not been given the full revelation of God. They, they have not been told everything that we have recorded for us in the New Testament. A lot of the, the revelation from God that we have now written down in the New Testament canon was not theirs. So there were many things, Jesus says, but they're not ready to hear it right now. Why aren't they ready? It would be difficult to process advanced theological doctrine and revelation from God on things like the cross and the resurrection and uh, his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit before the cross and the resurrection and his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit had taken place. It would just be very difficult to process. It would be like trying to put furniture in a house that, that didn't exist. I mean, you can go out and buy a couch, but where are you going to put it? They, they didn't have the rooms to, to fit all this revelation into yet. When the time was right, everything they needed to know and would be uh, given to them, and they could write it down and teach it to the early church. And that time was right after the Holy Spirit was sent on Pentecost. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, when that happens, Jesus says, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So a couple of observations about those two verses. Number one, the you in verses 12 through 15 is referring to the apostles. The you is not you or me. This is one of those times in the Bible where we need to be extremely careful not to insert ourselves into the text. When we, when we see that word you in the Bible, it does not always mean it's talking to us. In fact, the vast majority of cases, it's usually not. It was written to a specific people at a specific occasion for a specific purpose. We apply the text, but more often the, the you is not you and me. So the focus of this passage is not on the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, but on the specific work of the Holy Spirit to the apostles that Jesus was originally addressing. So we shouldn't read these verses and think that we should expect the Holy Spirit to give us uh, revelation about the future, uh, hidden things, or new truth. That's not the case. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will reveal those things to the apostles. They will be able to teach them and write them down for the church. So it's true that the Holy Spirit does illuminate the minds of Christians today, and, and he gives us understanding of existing scripture, but the Holy Spirit does not give Christians today new scripture. That is how cults are formed. That is how many of the, the false religions and the, and the cults that we have running around today are because they think that, or they claim, that God has given them new revelation. So the you is talking about the disciples, that's number one. Number two, the revelation that the Holy Spirit will give to the apostles is Trinitarian and Christocentric. All that the Father has is mine, 
and the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. All three persons of the Trinity are, are actively united in giving of revelation. And then in verse 14 of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit always points to Christ, not himself. The Holy Spirit points to Christ's cross, Christ's blood, Christ's atonement. He points to Christ's resurrection. He points to Jesus as the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. The Holy Spirit does not apply his own work to the life of believers. The Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to believers. So once again, beware of uh, teaching, possibly charismatic teaching, that seeks to elevate the person and work of the Holy Spirit above the person and work of Jesus Christ. 16. Get ready to rejoice. A little while and you will see, him, see me no longer, and again in a little while, and you will see me. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, and his post-resurrection appearances to these, these men and other disciples. And then if you caught this while we were reading it, verses 17 through 19 kind of go back and forth, uh, talking about the disciples' confusion, they're having a difficult time understanding Jesus, so we have these phrases a little while repeated. In fact, in those verses, it pops up seven times. We hear a little while, a little while. We really, it's not until verse 20 that we get to any sort of substance in the narrative with a truly, truly statement from Jesus. So verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So like we've seen a lot in the Gospel of John, we see the contrast between Jesus' disciples and the world. We see that again. And he says, the disciples, you're going to weep and lament. That's behavior associated with mourning someone who has died. You're, you're going to be weeping and lamenting. But the world will rejoice. All those people that had called for Jesus' crucifixion, they're going to be glad when he finally breathes his last on the cross. But things will change for his disciples as soon as they realize he has risen from the dead, and at that point their sorrow will turn to joy. And at this point, Jesus inserts an illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Let's stop right there. Her hour has come. Where have we heard that before? All over the place. It's been sprinkled throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, for example, John 7.30 so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Similarly, John 8.20, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But then when it finally is time for his resurrection, we look at John 12.23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So remember, the glorification that Jesus is talking about is his resurrection, his passion, his death, his resurrection. That's his hour. It's the time of his crucifixion. So at the cross, the disciples are completely devastated. They're filled with anguish. They're filled with sorrow because from their perspective, the worst case scenario has played out. Jesus has died. The man that they have pledged to follow and, and pledged with their life in some cases to follow has died. He is dead and gone. And so it looks like Jesus and subsequently his, his followers have lost. But, 
Jesus finishes the illustration. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being was born into the world. And then in verse 22, he makes the application. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When Jesus rises from the grave and the Holy Spirit gives them understanding to understand the scripture, they will see that the cross was necessary. They will see that his death was part of God's redemptive plan. They will not be in anguish anymore. They will be rejoicing. They will not be in sorrow. They will be filled with joy, so much joy that no one will be able to take it away. It will never be extinguished, diluted, lessened, or removed. The cross will no longer be the worst thing imaginable. It will be the greatest imaginable victory. That's all going to change. And I want to bring in an Old Testament cross-reference that will make this illustration in these verses shine even brighter because Jesus did not pick this pregnant woman passage at random. Let's take a look at Isaiah 26, 17 and 18. It says this, Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. This is a quote from Isaiah. In its original context, Isaiah is written to the people of God because they had broken covenant, they had disobeyed, they had rebelled, and they had, among other things, turned to the world for self-deliverance, for trusting in themselves and their own strength to to insulate themselves from the dangers of the world. They had aligned themselves with pagan nations. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, aligned themselves with Syria, and then later Judah aligned herself with Assyria. And so in its original context, this is talking about God's people in their own self-attempt, their own strength, to deliver themselves. And they were figuratively unable to bring forth that child. They were unable to achieve political military alliances that that brought them salvation. Those those alliances did not work out. They did not win. Uh, They were unable to bring forth their their own self-deliverance from their enemies. It says they brought forth wind, which is another way of saying nothing. We have achieved nothing under our own power. Isaiah 26 continues, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Again, in its original context, this is a message to God's people to hold on. Despite their failed efforts, despite their own failed attempt to deliver themselves, God would bring about the salvation that they could not achieve. In their own strength, they could neither save themselves or defeat their enemies. And even though many of God's people had died, they would rise again. This is a clear resurrection reference. You can see that in the the text. 
and they would sing for joy. However, the hour of this future glory is delayed. It's not coming immediately. There's going to be a little while where they have to wait and they have to shut themselves behind closed doors or in their own chambers, I think Isaiah says, until his work of punishing the inhabitants of the world is complete. God would execute judgment in his time. So now we can see why Jesus uses this pregnant woman illustration. It's not at random. You heard all those touch points. Joy, joy, a little while, a little while. Deliver, deliver, resurrection, resurrection. This is what he's saying. Jesus brings about the deliverance and salvation that no one can through their own self-efforts and their own strength. When it comes to our salvation, anything we can do is like giving birth to wind. We can do nothing to achieve our own salvation. It is when Jesus acts, it is when he rides in pain on the cross that he brings forth salvation. Jesus' work on the cross brings forth the true child of salvation and deliverance that results in unending joy. And even now, believers are to shut themselves behind the door that is Jesus Christ and wait a little while until God completes judgment that is going to be poured out on the inhabitants of the world for their iniquity. Isaiah 26 is a messianic text. It points forward to the work of Jesus Christ in our salvation. And the pregnant woman illustration was not chosen randomly. Hear this, hear this good news. When Christ rose from the grave, he brought forth salvation and deliverance that none of us can achieve on our own. It is available by faith in him. And once someone has repented and believed in Jesus, they will have joy that is never-ending, that the world can never take away. Part of the next part of his make ready command is ready to pray. He wants his disciples to be ready. So verse 23 and 24. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Another truly, truly statement. I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So they're instructed to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. And this is true for us today. We also are to follow this instruction. We're called to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. We're in a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it pleases God when we approach Him and make our requests in His Son's name. And He's delighted to answer our prayers. And as we receive answers to our prayers, we more fully experience the joy of what it means to be in a relationship with a good God who enjoys giving his children good gifts. Answered prayers lead us to praising and thanking God. Jesus often taught in parables and figures of speech, but here he tells his disciples, the hour is coming when I will no longer talk about things in parables and figures of speech. I will tell you plainly about the Father. Of course, after the resurrection, it was all plain to them because the Holy Spirit opened their minds. Verse 26 and 27, when they pray as instructed to the Father in the name of the Son, Jesus says, I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. So because of our spiritual union with Jesus Christ, 
we can go directly to the Father in the name of the Son and make our requests known. What Jesus is trying to say here is God does not reluctantly uh, answer our prayers only after the Son kind of prods and pleads and said, you know, just hear them out, please listen to them. No, he's saying the Father delights to listen to us. We can go directly to him. We have a direct relationship with the Father through the Son, through faith in Christ. One of the questions that Christians often ask about prayer is about praying to other persons of the, of the Godhead. Somebody might ask, well, can I, is it wrong to pray to the Son or, or pray to the Holy Spirit? After all, aren't they fully God? And the answer is yes, they are fully God. All three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are both fully God, co-equal in power and glory. And it is okay to pray to one of the other persons of the Godhead when it seems appropriate. For example, if we wanted to thank the Holy Spirit for applying the work of Christ to us, we could pray to the Holy Spirit, thanking Him. Or if we wanted to pray directly to Christ about some aspect of His atoning work, that would be permissible. But as a rule, we are to pray as God instructs us. Here is Jesus telling us, this is how I want you to pray. Pray to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't an isolated if we look down to chapter 17, how does Jesus start? Father. That's how Jesus prays. That's how we're to pray. If we go to Matthew 6, 9, with the Lord's Prayer, how does that begin? Jesus says, this is how I want you to pray. Heavenly Father. So it would seem very strange if someone insists on not praying to the Father. I, I, would, just, I would just wonder why someone would kind of fold their arms and say, well, I'm only praying to the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't seem in accordance with Scripture. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son as a rule, but exceptions, of course, are allowed. Let's keep moving. Verse 28, we believe. Jesus flat out tells them, I come to the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. This seems like a pretty straightforward statement about his origin and his final destination. But look at the disciples' response. Ah, now you're speaking plainly. Well, yes, he's speaking fairly plainly about those things. But then they say, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's almost like they're saying, okay, now that settles it, finally. We finally are, get it. We believe you're from God. No more questions. Discussion's over. It's like they're saying, we're all the way there, Jesus. We finally get it. We have all understanding. No, we don't have any more questions. We get it. And this seems like a disproportionate response to what Jesus just said. He said he talked about where he's from, where he's going, and they respond with um, a definitive belief. It almost seems like they're, they can tell that things are winding down. They can tell that this is, this is coming to a head. And it's almost as if Okay, Jesus has been with us for three years teaching us, if we don't get it now, we never will. So let's go ahead and tell them that we're there. Look, it, it almost makes it seem like they're trying to present themselves further along than they really are. And Jesus isn't buying it. Look at verse 31. Oh, do you now believe? Oh, okay. Everything's settled. Crystal clear. 
Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And the implication is, if you really got it, if you really understood everything there is to know about me, you wouldn't run away in the garden. And of course, they did. Yet Jesus was not left completely alone. The Father was with him. Verse 33, he said, I have said these things to you all this whole last night together discourse, everything from really chapter 13 to where we're at now, that in me you may have peace. He said similar comments. Um, John 14, 1, let your hearts not be troubled. Uh, John 16, 1, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. This has all been part of the make ready command. This is all giving them this last command, this last charge before they're released on their own uh, with the Holy Spirit, but not with the physical presence of Christ. So he's been preparing them for what's about to come, the, the trial, the arrest, the crucifixion, but also for their apostolic ministry in a hostile world. All of this is part of the preparation. And he wants them to have peace in their hearts. He wants them to have things settled so that they're not anxious, so that they're not troubled, so that when things start to get hot, they don't fluster and, and run away from the front line. So that when, when they start to experience some of the difficult times that are coming, they don't fumble with the, with the musket and the powder while they're receiving enemy fire. He wants them calm. He wants them assured. And then he gives them this, his last words. This is it, before the high priestly prayer. These are Jesus' last words to them. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying to them. This is not an example. This is not Jesus telling them just look at me, I'm the example, and then, and then you do what I do. Uh, he's not saying to them, things are going to be tough for you in this world, but, but be encouraged, because I beat the world. And if I can do it, so can you. So get out there and, and, and bring your A game and do your best. I did it. That's not it. This is not Jesus giving them an example to follow that they can do on their own. Here's what he's saying. You're going to experience difficult times. There's going to be tribulation. You're going to have a rough time in it in this world. And as you live out your discipleship faithfully, as it gets tough, I want you to know I've won. This is the commander telling, telling the troops about the outcome of the battle before it even happens. I've won. As the, as the disciples step out onto the battlefield, this commander tells them with 100% unquestionable certainty the outcome of the battle. It's over. I have achieved victory. And because I have won, you also have won. Because of your spiritual union with me. Because you are in Christ, to use Pauline language, New Testament, you are in Christ, you have won. That's why. Because you're connected to me. You've won the battle. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, I have won the victory. I have achieved that. And because I have won, you win too. 
And he's telling them this because it's going to get rough. And he wants them to know that whatever the world does now, it has absolutely no outcome on the, uh, no, no final impact on the outcome whatsoever. Whatever the world does, that's, that's not going to impact the, the final outcome. There were uh, a couple of cousins that got together for a Thanksgiving celebration, and one was in high school, the other was in elementary school. And the, the younger one really wanted to play this game, but it was a hard, kind of an adult game with lots of strategy, and he said, yeah, teach me how to play this. And so they played, and, and the older cousin let him win. And he just thought it would be better if he let his younger cousin win. So they played once, and he let him win. And he got all excited. He played a second time. He got really excited. In fact, he got overexcited. He got cocky and confident. And he started taunting his older cousin. And he started insulting his older cousin. And so the high schooler said, let's play again. And this time, the high school cousin did not let him win. He steamrolled over the elementary cousin, and they got to the last turn of the game, and the older cousin said, well, <laughs> I don't think we have to keep going. Good, good game? And the younger cousin said, no, it's my turn. He said, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to win as soon as it's my turn. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I want to play. So the older cousin said, okay, fine. And so the younger cousin played out his turn very slowly, and and then kind of paused and was considering moves. And he said, what if I do this? And the older cousin said, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. Are you done? No, I'm not done. And he just prolonged and protracted his turn. And finally, he passed over the dice. And, and the older cousin rolled them and went, said, I won. It's over. The world will continue in sin and rebellion and lawlessness, and in the persecution of the saints, but they are just moving pieces around on the board. It has no outcome, no, no impact on the final outcome. Like a little child who is defiantly prolonging his last turn, the world is moving pieces around the board. But when it's Jesus' turn, he's going to win, and he's going to win quickly. In fact, the battle has already been won. When Jesus makes his move, it's going to be game over. Brothers and sisters, what a huge encouragement this is to us because we are still in the world. We're still here. We, we see the world in its sin and its rebellion and its lawlessness, and, and we often experience persecution. They're just moving pieces around on the board. Christ is going to return, and he has already won the battle on our behalf. For those that may not be in Christ this morning, I have one question. Have you made ready? And the only way to make ready for what comes next is to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. In the 18th century, when the British Army was issuing these musket drill commands, they would often uh, use drum commands. They, they would beat the drum and each signature rhythm would represent a different one of these commands. Because in the heat of the battle, with the cannons going off and the horses galloping around and the, and the shouts and the cries, sometimes it was kind of hard to hear one person issue a command. So they issued them via the drums. And they beat them loudly 
and repeatedly so the troops could hear and follow the commands. So they could make ready. Jesus has instituted a drum corps called the church. And for the last 2,000 years, she has been beating out the call to make ready. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. Over and over again, she's been beating this command on every continent to the world with a cacophony of sin and noise and rebellion and everything that's going on. The church has been beating this call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's time to make ready. If you've never turned to faith in Jesus, now is the time. Repent of your sin. That means to turn away, to renounce sin. And and be be forewarned, when, when it says repent of your sin, when the Bible calls us to repent of sin, yes, it's evil, but it's going to be different from the world. There are going to be things that the world calls right, that the Bible calls wrong. There are going to be things that Scripture says is sin, that the world says is good. So don't listen to the world. Don't think, I have to clean up my act according to the world. No, you have to repent according to Scripture. That's what Christ calls us to. And then believe in Him. Believe in in His work on the cross for you. Jesus' blood covered or atoned for sin. If you want that covering to atone for your sin personally, you have to repent and believe in Christ. There is no other door to walk through. And then God promises to credit or impute that perfect moral righteousness of Christ to every believer. That's his promise. Because under our own power, our own self-efforts, we cannot achieve salvation. Don't try to give birth to your own salvation. You will bring forth wind or nothing. Don't think that through your own self-effort you will earn a spot in heaven. No, you must make ready. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that we have a Savior who went to the cross on our behalf, who shed his blood to cover our sin. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who has applied the work of Christ to us. And we give you thanks with this sure and certain knowledge that the battle has been won. And because we are in Christ by faith, faith, the victory is ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen.